Welcome back to The Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. For our second podcast of the Enemy series, I'm very pleased to be joined by Plow contributing editor Leah Labresco and by author and commentator Frederick DeBoer. Welcome and thank you for coming on the show. You are the author of a new book, your latest, How Elites Stole the Social Justice Movement. Um, what Describe this book. It's kind of an outgrowth of other stuff that you've been talking about for a long time. Um, uh, uh, people might know you from your previous book, The Cult of Smart, or from your extensive online writings. Um, but it's also something, it's a bit of a new direction. Can you describe what led you to write the book and um, what questions you're trying to answer? Um, I wrote the book because we were trying to buy a house, um, and uh, we did. Um, but congratulations! Uh, thanks. Um, so there's a few things. I think the biggest thing was just that I have been um, <clears throat> shocked by the degree to which uh, the 2020 uprising, if you want to call that, or however you want to talk about the sort of post George Floyd moment was discussed as a sort of epical um, society altering phase in which it was a constant deluge of people talking about how nothing would ever be the same. And from the vantage of three years in the future, just three years in the future, um, almost everything appears to be the same. And uh, there's been tremendous little uh, conversation about uh, <clears throat> what happened and what didn't happen and why. So the, the core of the book is a sort of brief pop history of what led into uh, <clears throat> that moment. So talking about uh, things like uh, Occupy Wall Street and the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, the Trump election, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the birth of Black Lives Matter in 2014, um, and then sort of what happened and where things went and why things didn't change. Um, part of the reason why I think uh, <clears throat> we haven't really grappled with this profound failure of this massively hyped moment to actually result in any meaningful change. Um, I think number one is people are scared to say so. One of the things that has lingered is a fear of appearing to uh, criticize Black Lives Matter and the movement against uh, police violence. But also number two, I think that we are trapped in the conversation about wokeness or whatever term you wanna use in a way that's really destructive and unhelpful. And one of the things that I have to keep sort of letting people know is that the uh, this book has very little to do with what people call woke or wokeness, because um, when we talk about things being woke, we're, we're generally talking about um, interpersonal or within individual systems sort of uh, <clears throat> uh, codes of behavior and language. Uh, that are not really connected in a deeper way to a movement to achieve change. So uh, archetypally, right, a woke moment is when someone says something that's considered offensive in an academic or corporate context, and the uh, the leadership of that school or of that business make the decision to enforce consequences on the person who said the supposedly uh, offensive thing. Uh, and then maybe that becomes a, a media item. And then the debate is about whether that, that uh, term is really offensive and whether the uh, punishment was appropriate, etc. All of that is very distinct from the effort to actually create lasting change in the world. Um, I have been doing some kind of um, <clears throat> in real life activism uh, since I was a teenager. And um, there's very little discussion of that in part because it's just easier to report out on um, things that happen in, in sort of like these sort of woke cons uh, controversies. But it is very, very deeply frustrated me that there's not more consideration of, okay, the 2020 moment as a moment in the history of activism, of social movements, of trying to achieve, achieve social change and legislative change, um, how is that situated? What uh, has actually changed? Why have so many things not changed? And where are we going from here? And that was the point of the book. I want to, I want to ask a follow-up question there, um, just because I think I definitely recognize some of this inward-turned paranoia um, in social justice movements, and I feel like part of it comes out of that real sense that when you get this 
big moment, this energy behind Black Lives Matter, it ends up co-opted, dissipated, made into stickers, right? So I can see how there's a, not so much, I, I understand where the drive for more shibboleths, more ways to check who's actually on your side um, and who's kind of, well, capitalism comes into being. So how do people distinguish between a healthy paranoia that whenever a social movement emerges, it will be co-opted and watered down and a destructive paranoia? Um, I think that there's just I think that there's just a, a real lack of strategic vision all around. I mean, I think one of the things that was difficult about this moment is that um, a lot of traditions of left activism and left protesting and social movements um, uh, have uh, <clears throat> either sort of got extinct because the way that they were branding themselves or their particular concerns were considered not to line up uh, perfectly with the concerns of the social justice movement. Um, so, for example, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, when was this? Maybe in 2005, whenever Connecticut um, per performed its last execution um, of a man named Michael Ross, a serial killer named Michael Ross, um, I was actually there at the protests um, <clears throat> against the execution. And I was talking to a friend uh, recently, and we were saying about how like this sort of the anti-death penalty movement, uh, that as we knew it, at least in that local context, was really sort of subsumed uh, under this much broader sort of uh, anti-criminal justice movement. And in some ways, you know, you lose a certain sense of the continuity of those things. Another good example of this is, um, so Antifa, and it is, uh, by the way, uh, uh, Antifa. It is not pronounced Antifa. And the, the, the quickest way for me to know that you're a poser is if you say Antifa, all right? Like the fact that so many people are saying Antifa goes to show that like we don't have a tradition here. Now, I've been around uh, Antifa at protests since I was like 17 years old. And one of the things that's lost on a lot of people is that Antifa always had a controversial sort of a perspective or, or point of view uh, within the left coalition, right? Like it, it was perfectly common, for example, at the um, uh, anti-war protests that I was helping organize around the Iraq war, um, for a lot of the people in the groups involved to be um, quite um, dismissive or antagonistic towards uh, Antifa because the, you know, the thing that happened a lot was Antifa would show up, they'd do some sort of meaningless provocation and invite police violence. There was also a whole discourse, uh, which is completely forgotten now, that Antifa was a white, uh, was a, a, a white affluent um, element of the left coalition, that the people who joined and participated in Antifa were the people who were the sort of angry, rich white kids who were looking for an excuse to, be, to blow shit up. When you have that kind of, when you, so many of those things are lost, because right now, if I talk to the average person who describes themselves as a socialist, they have no idea that Antifa was ever controversial, right? They'll just say, oh, Antifa are, are, are there are, uh, are, uh, <clears throat> our heroes are, you know, are anti-capitalist soldiers, which has completely drained the complexity of what used to be a very complex situation. When that happens, I don't think people have a strategic sense really at all, right? So, so why are people so rootless when they look at their own movement? Because in some ways, you know, the internet and archival research there makes it easier than ever to look at mm -hmm. kind of, you know, I've been reading kind of detailed articles about the rescue movement for uh, pro-lifers, you know, where I can go through all the scans. I've seen people passing around scanned copies of Triumph on the right. Like it's easier than ever to look at the documentation from previous parts of a movement. Why do you think people have this disconnect when it's all there somewhere? Um, I think that uh, <clears throat> there's a there's a few sort of things that all sort of point in the same direction on this. I think the first of which is that like, um, it used to be the case that there was a certain amount of skin in the game that was required of you to participate in these things, right? Like, I sat in a lot of smelly hot vans for hours on rides down to DC to attend rallies against the war in the 2000s, right? Um, if you wanted to uh, <clears throat> hear an anti-war speech, right? You couldn't just wait for the video to pop up on YouTube because there was no YouTube. Um, uh, and those sort of things weren't carried even by the few sites, like the news sites that already had video capability at that point. You had to actually go and seek them out. Um, 
when you reduce the barriers to, you know, quote unquote, participate in the process, when you have made it so easy for people to engage in things that feel like and maybe look from the outside like participation, then it disincentivizes doing the work of, of research, right? Like, um, <clears throat> this is a, a, a fundamental problem is um, the left has in the last uh, couple decades traded uh, <clears throat> intensity for just sheer boots on the ground, right? So when this was all happening, millions of people who had never been be before been part of any kind of political activist movement um, sort of started to consider themselves supporters of the George Floyd um, protests. M millions of people went to went to their first protest physically, but millions more, you know, changed their Instagram photo to a black photo, right? Um, and so when the the sort of tools are so accessible and it seems so easy to be able to participate, right? You, you don't have the sort of natural thing of, well, if I'm devoting a lot of my time and energy into this, then I'm going to bother to do the work and to investigate and to figure out what's really going on here. But it's also a vestige of the fact that um, there's a real infantile resistance to anything that came before out of the conviction that, you know, the youth will save us, the, 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 the savior is always the next generation. So um, <clears throat> I'm a, an elder millennial. There was a time when people talked about us the way they're talking about Gen Z now, right? In other words, oh, you know, the Republicans will never win another election once the millennials really start voting, right? Which is a thing that just gets said over and over and over again. I, a point that I make all the time Nowadays, people talk about Gen X as being the uh, the politically apathetic generation, but when they were in their 20s, they were known as the crazy political generation. There's, um, I can't remember what the headline is, but there's a, a Time Magazine, excuse me, cover story all about how Gen X is, why are they so crazy and political? Why, why are they so radical? They, they shut down the WTO meetings in um, <clears throat> Seattle with what were some of the most intense uh, uh, protests that we've ever seen. And so there's an amnesia about the fact that these claims have been made before. And there's a real dedication to saying, okay, the next generation is going to be the one that does it. And it's like, when during the sort of immediate post financial crisis era, the Occupy era, some people had a slogan, which made me wince so hard, which was like, it was called No Dads, which was supposed to be like the statement that like, we don't have, you know, we don't have any uh, older authority figures over us. We're, you know, we're doing our own thing. But it's like, you're just literally just saying my interest in this is Oedipal, right? Like you're just saying, this is about psychodrama. And so I think when, you, when you've when you've created these, these conditions where you are constantly valorizing the youth and saying that the new will always be better than the old, then, uh, you, you're telling people, hey, there's no reason to, to research what was happening uh, in the civil rights movement in the mid-1960s because that's the past. That's the deads. This seems related to me, linked to me to um, something else that you wrote about in the book, which is the kind of allergy to hierarchy or to leadership. So when I was involved in Occupy, which was basically me going down to Zuccotti Park and hanging out in the little library area, and then like maybe kind of sitting around at some meetings. That was the first time I had ever kind of encountered both the idea, like the consensus decision-making attempt with a group of people who had never met each other before largely. Um, and also the sort of idea of progressive stack and that sort of commitment to consensus decision-making, which I mean, so the Bruderhof, which is the group that publishes this magazine, actually they're an Anabaptist, you know, religious community and they actually do practice consensus decision-making. So it can work for them, um, but I've found it to be incredibly um, cumbersome when it when when it's actually put into practice. And you describe a kind of a, a, a moment when you were actually ejected from a group for, for as as a result of this a commitment to consensus and allergy to leadership, and that allergy to leadership and to hierarchy seems to me to be linked to the allergy to elders. Essentially, is that does that make sense to you? And can you describe that that moment? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, I think that that does make sense to me. Yeah. So um, the Progressive Student Alliance at Central Connecticut State University, where I got my uh, BA, um, was, uh, you know, the, the place where I really became an activist and where it went from being like, uh, you know, a thing that I did every a couple of weekends uh, a year to being something that I was doing 
at one point, like 20 plus hours a week. Um, and it was really generative and the people were really smart and committed. And uh, it was really a wonderful part of my life. And also that group was also really fucked up and constantly blowing itself up, which is because it is a far left group and that's what we do, right? Um, uh, yeah, so the story, just the story goes that uh, I've been in that group for a while. There were some sort of longstanding tensions um, I was not the leader. I was one of several people who I would call leaders. Um, there was total resistance to saying that anyone had any formal position as a leader, which makes no sense, right? Because the thing about leadership is like, it exists even if you don't give it names. Like some people are more committed than other people. Some people are bringing more to the table. Some people are more willing to work. And that's necessary if you're going to get anything done. So you can refuse to give leadership names, but it doesn't change the fact that leadership dynamics exist in those spaces, which is a point that I was making all the time. They Some uh, some people in the group wanted to adopt a, consi a, a consensus only uh, decision-making process, which means that um, for any decision that we made, uh, it was not sufficient to vote and get a majority, but that every decision we made had to uh, be carried out via unanimous consensus. That anyone who who, uh, who objected to anything uh, would stop the process and we would have to continue to talk until we had consensus on something. Uh, this, there are some very obvious problems with that. The first one is that anyone could show up to our meetings. We didn't want to keep anyone out. Any student could show up and say, I'm a member of the meeting now. But that meant that consensus becomes an incredibly easy tool for someone to just totally derail the group, right? If there's no set, sort of vetting process whatsoever and anyone has the ability to sort of singularly shut down the consensus process, you become extremely vulnerable like to like saboteurs, but also to just to assholes, right? Like just not necessarily to people who are like, doing it in a scheming way, but who just are like, not productive. But the other thing, the better big thing for me was to say that like, look, um, we're a working class uh, college with a very diverse student body. And we should want our decisions and our positions within our group to be diverse in turn. And, you know, I don't want to be part of a group that agrees about everything. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure a bunch of Anabaptists can get consensus a lot, but that tells you more about Anabaptists than it tells you about the the, the issues, right? So anyway, but look, I you know I respect the democratic process, so I said we had a long discussion, and I said, well, look, let's just let's just uh, uh, take the vote, and if I lose, I lose. That's how it works. Um, and the thing is that I knew that there were people who agreed with me, but who were afraid to speak out. So again, like you, you're talking about trying to create consensus and so that everybody feels heard, but there's people in the group who are afraid to defy the consensus push because they're afraid of, you know, of pissing off the right people. That's an indication of exactly of why consensus doesn't work. Because another thing that happens with consensus is you forever end up with people getting railroaded where they do formally consent to whatever the issue is, but they're only doing so under coercion, but they have no other way to do it. Let me ask you one tangential question there. Given those critiques of consensus, do you think it's a reasonable standard for juries? Uh, that's a good question. Because um, I've served on a jury and there was a lot of like browbeating because we knew we had to get to consensus regardless of whether there was agreement. Yeah, your story reminded me of 12 Angry Men. I was like picturing you like they're directed by Sidney Lumet. Like, yeah, I have. <laughs> I haven't given this a ton of thought. I think the fact that um, the f a failure to achieve consensus results in a mistrial, which is not the same as a conviction, but the, pr the practical outcome of what a mistrial actually means for the accused uh, makes that a very difficult question. But I mean, I would, to the degree to which a mistrial is, is of benefit to the accused, I don't mind if the consensus system is used in such a way that um, the accused is helped by the more, more likely chance of a mistrial. That being said, I really haven't thought about it that deeply. Yeah, I would tend to agree just because the, the whole point being the worst, the worst situation is convicting an innocent person. So the whole point is that you ought to be able to convince 12 people to have consensus about this. Yeah, exactly right. And it goes along with just the sense that like the burden is on the state to prove the case, right?
the question I, I guess I would have is, is this baked into the left? So respect for hierarchy and leaders and elders in the past are sort of right-coded things. Is there a way for a leftist group to um, adopt these things? And kind of, what, and what would that look like? Yeah, I'm interested in this too. Yeah, um, so, I mean, I just think that like... Uh, I want to know what a healthy engagement with tradition looks like. Yeah, I would um, like I guess the thing I would do is like I would steer us away from abstraction here. Right. OK, um, I am a leftist uh, and I have been a socialist and other titles, etc., which refers to um, both a, a moral system and a system for understanding the world, both of which coalesce into a set of like positions that I hold. Um, I have never held the position. Right that the new is necessarily better than the uh, than the old. And I think that like that kind of commitment is just not compatible with a uh, ability to just sort of move about the world intelligently, right? Like, um, look, uh, there is a teleological aspect of Marxism in that it believes in successive phases of history. And if all goes according to plan, uh, each successive phase is better than the one that came before it. But that doesn't mean that even from a strictly Marxist position, there that within any particular phase of history, there's a preference for the later phase than for the earlier, right? And so, and I think that that sort of thing is like, this is actually something that I've um, been saying for a long time is like, I think that the left gets gets too caught up in that kind of abstraction, like the new is good. I think that that sort of thing um, steers us in the wrong direction. But the reason why that the sort of that kind of abstraction is so common on the left is because when you've been systematically excluded from actual power, right? When you when you actually like your position, when DSA gets position gets together, and uh, and debates things, their position on whether a given federal judge uh, actually gets uh, confirmed or not is completely meaningless, right? Because they have no uh, ability to influence that process at all. And when you don't have the ability to influence the actual practical process of uh, democracy. Um, you all it's it's very easy to retreat to the abstract the symbolic this uh philosophical the linguistic i mean this is bound up in why the left has been uh, had so much zeal for language codes and things like that lately right um we can't tear down capitalism <clears throat> we can't tear down the carceral state we can't even get a ham sandwich put on any in any actual legislative uh capacity um so what do we do well we can control language. We can demand things in language. We happen to have our bases of power in places like media and academia and Hollywood and the world of nonprofits. So the world where the symbolic and the linguistic is privileged. And so you always push in that direction towards abstraction, towards uh, sort of regulating the symbolic, because you know, what else are we going to do? It seems to me that... so. Your book touches on this, and this is a way in which it links up with Saurabh Amari's new book, Tyranny, Inc. You said only power is power and the left doesn't have it. Um, and you're talking about like political power here. But what it seems to me that is going on is you can sort of see, you know, when, when people on the right think of the left, they don't think usually of the economic left. They usually they don't think of people opposing capitalism half the time they oppose capitalism. They think in terms of the left is something that is utterly committed to as their primary thing, these symbolic things. And so it seems, but it seems to me that like what's lost in those squabbles is the fact that essentially corporate power is using these kind of symbolic um, victories or um, battles you know, it usually over things that have to do with identity politics as a way to protect its own actual sort of financial power, as a way to like mystify and disguise the protection that is doing of the, the real power that it is seeking to protect, which is its own, you know, economic dominance. Does that, is that a sort of description of what you're getting at to a certain degree? Yeah, sure. Um, I would, uh, <clears throat> I would I would push back a little bit about saying that uh, the left doesn't have power is particularly about political power. Obviously, political power is a big part of it, but um, 
labor power is another axis of power that is not actually fundamentally political. And that was once the left's great strength and we don't have it anymore. So, um, and this is the sort of thing, like I talk to younger lefties and these are people who think of themselves as these socialists and in the tradition of Marx and, and, and the, the labor movement, et cetera. But they conceive of unions only as fundamentally political organizations in the sense that like they can donate money to candidates or they can rally their workers to vote for a particular candidate, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> what the uh, labor movement of the uh, early parts of the 20th century, so stretch of two or three decades uh, in the first half of the 20th century when that movement was at its zenith, they were taking uh, advantage of the direct material power that uh, labor uh, sort of entitles you to. So a strike, for example, is fundamentally not a political uh, <clears throat> uh, exercise. So what you sometimes will hear, like workers will go on strike and someone will say, oh, well, this is going to turn the public against them. But the fact of the matter is that like uh, a well-executed strike, it just makes no difference if the public cares about you. What a strike does is it says it will be more expensive to you as a business to oppose our demands than to give them to us. And we're going to prove that with our, by denying our labor power. And eventually it's going to get uh, expensive enough that it just doesn't make sense in a pocketbook sense for you not to give us what we want. And it just absolutely makes no difference if people find that that's powerful, right? So that's an example of the kind of power that we used to have and we don't have anymore. Um, unfortunately, um, <clears throat> the successes of the early American labor movement, uh, which were instrumental in all kinds of aspects of uh, improving working conditions for working people, um, has been, um, was sort of met by a really ferocious um, anti-union, uh, <clears throat> organized anti-union uh, movement uh, led uh, among other places, for example, by the US Chamber of Commerce, which sounds like an official government organization, but it's not, um, uh, <clears throat> that sort of poisoned the well. So there's this famous a clip of Ronald Reagan, I think it's 81, maybe 80 or 81. Um, and he's giving a speech in which he is giving a soaring uh, <clears throat> endorsement of union rights and why unions are so essential and so important to America and to the common man. I have no doubt that he didn't believe in any of it because he's Ronald Reagan and his administration was doing everything possible to, to hurt the labor movement. But at that point in our culture, you could not be a national politician and just be generally uh, identified as anti-labor. That's completely changed, right? Now a, a Republican would never give that speech, a, you know, a big national Republican, and they would, uh, in fact, often will often use their anti-labor credentials as a political chip. And so that's fundamentally, you know, I think what's lacking from the left right now is this, this axis of power that we used to have was systematically degraded by a lot of bad laws. It was degraded by uh, globalization, and it was degraded by um, the way that the, the axis of the left moved from uh, the sort of union hall into the universities. So something that you, you sort of, the way that you described um, what you meant by politics and the, the distinction between what unions are doing and, you know, the properly political is interesting to me just because when I think of politics, I tend to think of like, so my experience of activism such as it was, was really Occupy. And the thing that was distinct for, to me about that was that it was, it was totally dysfunctional community, but it was creating a sort of actual lived community with its own incredibly messed up governance. But the, the sort of attractiveness of it was like, here's an actual community that is being created and that people are experiencing whether or not we even know what we want, you know, in terms of, you know, demands, um, you know, we didn't really, but we knew we wanted to kind of like, you know, it was, a, it was the general kind of like leftist anti-globalism vibe from that time. And there was this sense of like, there was a, a dehumanized global faux community that is destroying actual lived community. And so whatever else we're going to do, we're going to stay here until it gets too cold. Um, and it seems to me that political activism can create powerful communities. And that's actually one of the most attractive things about it. Like people's friend groups are all bound up in these things. Um, but, but that can kind of like get complicated and overlapping because they're, but because political activism, you know, political, various kinds of political activism, whether electoral or, you know, you wouldn't call unions political activism 
or you know economic pressure groups have a purpose that's other than existing together in peace and friendship is there a way for an activist community to be a real community whose primary purpose is existing together in peace and friendship but which has as a kind of secondary um, purpose various kinds of political change does that have you seen that is that something that seems desirable to you I mean I'm trying to think of examples I mean <clears throat> I think you could you could name the Quakers uh, as a group that has a fundamentally communal orientation, a religious orientation, and they have been at times a remarkably effective uh, political sort of activist block in some places, but it's certainly a, a sort of a limited sort of power. I mean, here, here's the deal is um, the first thing is, is that that kind of community and that, that's what people always talk about at Occupy. And I think that that is a, a lovely thing that people experience that sense of community. And I think it is a, gen, a really deep indictment of the culture that they were living in. Had so many people had never felt something like that before. Um, and there's a whole conversation that we can have about the demise of traditional communities and religiosity and the roles that they played in, in fostering a sense of community, et cetera. But the, fundamentally, none of that is politics, right? And I think that one of the one of the traps the left is just forever falling into is um, coming to believe that being a certain way, right? Being a certain kind of person, existing with other certain people in like a certain kind of state is inherently like a political act when it is not, right? Um, politics is something that you do. Morality is something that you do. It's not something that you are. So you can be in this groovy community, right? Uh, and have all the right values and treat each other in a good way. But you'll be completely inert if you're not actually using that community as a locus of organizing to change the world. I mean, we've seen this movie before, right? It's exactly what happened with the hippies, right? There was a, uh, a very radical sort of explicitly political side to that whole uh, mission. Uh, but there was also a, you know, a lot of it was just, hey, let's have sex and do drugs and be cool together. And a ton of those people sort of dropped out and, uh, you know, bought communes in Vermont and just sort of like gave up on the political process, which is part of what why, you know, the 60s led eventually to the 80s. Right. Um, it can't be uh, <clears throat> underestimated uh, the importance of this next part, which is that um, the left has no choice but to bring overwhelming numbers to bear. Right. Um, Conservatives win when nothing happens, right? They have a certain home court advantage in that way. And uh, it's also true that like, um, generally speaking, conservatism, and there's obviously plenty of uh, uh, exceptions to this, but generally speaking, conservatism tends to work for the benefit of uh, the already moneyed and the already sort of socially powerful. So Donald Trump is in office. Uh, he can't get his signature healthcare legislation past his own party. He goes nowhere with immigration. But the one major law that he passes in four years is a uh, tax cut on the rich, right? And that's not a coincidence. So in order to beat that kind of like establishment power, the left just has to have numbers. And the only way that you really get numbers is precisely by not appealing to people's sense of let's all be groovy friends together. Um, <clears throat> I, I think one of the fundamental misconceptions is that left politics are all about self-interest, right? Like left, po wealth, left politics waged well are not done out of a selfless impulse. Selflessness is great, but you can ask Karl Marx, right? And he'll tell you that fundamentally people work politically uh, for to satisfy their own ends. And that hopefully what happens is we come together and we all try to satisfy our own needs and that does the best for society. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Leah and Freddie after the break. I want to push you back here a little bit because I don't agree with you that conservatives have the advantage of inertia. I think no one really does. Um, and I, I want to push back a little with the Chesterton quote I like, which is, you know, he says, uh, conservatism is based on the idea that if you leave things alone, you leave them as they are, but you do not. If you leave a thing alone, you leave it to a torrent of change. 
If you leave a white post alone, it will soon be a black post. If you want it to be white, you must always be painting it again. And I think everything, you know, progressive values and conservative values require active renewal to stay as they are, not to just even drift in a kind of Brownian motion of culture. So I want to push, like, is conservatism something that really benefits just from inertia, from do nothing? Or does it also erode or change what it is if people aren't engaged in a project of active renewal? Well, I think that this is, I think that, that that's a, I think that's a very good point, but I think that it like, it sort of interfaces with this, this thing, which is like, it is a very reductive, but true statement, right? Um, <clears throat> leftists want uh, economic power, but have cultural power and conservatives have economic power, but want cultural power, right? Like the, what animates sort of big picture, let's say, let's say, let's leave conservative out of it. Let's say Republican, okay? If you just look at what's happening in the Republican party, it has been happening for years, right? There is an immense fixation on uh, <clears throat> the cultural side and the cultural war sort of side of politics, right? Ron DeSantis has decided that the only way that he's gonna beat Donald Trump in a presidential primary is by being Mr. Anti-Woke, by pushing books or whatever into or out of libraries, whatever whatever the impact of those things are, they are definitely uh, intended to a, a sort of appeal to a certain vision of like cultural and social definition of what it means to be an American and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, if you want to, if you're sort of looking at things and you're looking at like the effective tax rate of uh, the top 20, top one, top 0.01% in uh, the United States over the past quarter century, uh, you'd be feeling pretty good if you're if you're if you're a rich person, right? In other words, like the the rules are still set up in a way that benefit your interests. Whereas on the left, um, the left makes all the movies and the music, and uh, it sort of you know uh, sets the agenda on many of the sort of discursive platforms in, lift in which we live, um, but what's like a major victory in terms of uh, like a fundamental economic change that was achieved through policy for Americans. You could say like the, the, uh, the, the provisions in the uh, COVID emergency bills, I guess so, but that's all, you know, temporary by design. The only thing you're, that sort of moves the needle at all is Obamacare, which happened 14 years ago, and which, for the record, was supported by every major insurance company in the country, right? I think what, what it's really sort of fascinating to hear you describe the way that you see these things, because so much of the, so many of the people that I kind of like talk to about them and sort of generally the way I, I think about them is like, you really kind of have to disaggregate. So you've seen obviously the quadrant where it's like, lower right-hand corner is socially progressive, um, economically sort of, you know, liberal, so economically right-wing. Um, and th th that kind of like libertarian social progressivism is the is basically empty. And the upper left-hand corner, which is the socially conservative and economically more left, is that's all, like that's a lot of people. And so I think that like when you when you talk about left and right, it's basically I I don't really see any. I'm not sure what like when you say left, do you mean economic left? Because you're you're sort of describing economic victories as being the only material victories that the left is should be aiming at, or not like the only, but like the major. That's those are the victories that are, you know, not being won. But you also say that the left has cultural power, but that seems to me to be like cultural left or like, you know, social, social left as opposed, you know, socially progressive people as opposed to economically left people. And there's there's things... no will and grace for UBI. Yeah. Like... Yeah. There's no, so there's no like economic left cultural power, it seems to me at all. Um, and if there were like that it kind of doesn't make sense. Like, how could there be? And also, if there were, I know a lot of socially conservative people who would be in favor of it, because half of them are extremely economically left. Um, and I just so I just wonder, like, how how can we think about these things in in ways that are kind of like that more reflect what people's actual interests, if you want to put it that way, are or actual priorities are. Sure. I like, mean, is that kind of analysis something that you've run into at all? I mean, look, I, um, <clears throat> the, 
that quadrant of sort of uh, socially conservative and economically progressive, um, which does not have a lot of magazines un or think tanks, unlike libertarianism, um, which has an immense number of, of magazines and think tanks and fellowships, etc. Despite the fact that, as you said, one quadrant is full and the other is empty. On the one hand, I mean, look, the uh, that the socially conservative, economically liberal uh, thing was more or less the con the coalition that George W. Bush won uh, the presidency with. Um, so, like, you know, compassionate conservative. And that, you know, I you can argue that uh, <clears throat> that there's a certain level in which Donald Trump is at least. Uh, playing to that uh to that group by with his you know dogged refusal to touch entitlements like social security and medicare but on the other hand like the fact is the fact that the the sort of economically uh, so uh, economically conservative but socially liberal thing has such a presence in political culture the fact that reason magazine exists whereas i can think of no analog to reason magazine for the economically uh, liberal and socially conservative side. The fact that I can think of about eight. That's like all. That's those are like the only places. And yeah. in fairness, Susanna, I, <laughs> I know you're on the board of half of them, uh, but they don't. They don't have the level of influence or readership that Reason does. There, I, I would argue that there's nothing. There's nothing in that quadrant that is of the influence that the the uh, Cato Foundation has been, for example. Oh sure, yeah. Right. I mean. Yeah, and sort of all the legacy kind of fusionist organizations and the Koch brothers and et cetera. Right. Um, but I, I, like it, you know, it's it's just so strange to hear you describe this because, like, from my perspective, basically everyone I know, or not everyone I know, because my family are socially progressive, but like my whole kind of work life is economic left, socially conservative to a certain degree, and so and there's this general sense that like that is the rising face of. That should Susanna, be where the this GOP is a living is on Twitter problem. I like, know it's you know not I'm living on, your on side Twitter here, problem. It is important to remember that this is not a broad movement. Like it might be a pitch we can make, uh, but because, because I think Freddie, this is an interest of yours. Like, what happens if you live too much online and then start to believe that your activism can be shaped by what's compelling to the people you're talking to? I mean, look, like uh, there is an old sort of and it's sort of self-flattering, sort of left liberal uh, perspective, which says that, like, um, you know, it's the sort of what's the matter with Kansas sort of thing that uh, many Republican voters are sort of downwardly mobile white people who would benefit the most from social programs. But the uh, Republic Republicans effectively use cultural uh, uh, issues as a wedge to sort of uh, drive them away from the Democrats. I think it's inarguable that or indisputable that sometimes that happens, right? So, for example, again, to, to speaking of George W. Bush again, in 2004, um, it's remarkable how narrow his victory over John Kerry really was, given all the goodwill he had from 9-11. But one of the ways in which he secured it is that Karl Rove had him running really, really hard against gay marriage, right? Um, an issue which, of course, had very, very little influence over the day-to-day -day lives of most people compared to, you know, Medicaid expansion or something like that, right? Um, I think that, uh, I guess what I would say is this, it is certainly the case that the language of social justice, which often dabbles in discussions of economic injustice, but is uh, in the aggregate relentlessly fixated on cultural issues, on social issues, on linguistic issues. The language of social uh, justice has just become the language of institutions in the United States, right? Like, like, you know, you have, I mean, you have like the Department of Energy, right? Like putting out statements about pronouns and things like that. Like you have, you have oil companies, which are, uh, you know, ha announcing fellowships for Black Lives Matter themed uh, uh, college student internships. You, you have, uh, you know, pride flags fly outside of the headquarters of Goldman Sachs, right? Um, that is what uh, the left has been able to do, has been able to associate a certain kind of base level of respectability with uh, with sort of 
projecting the right sort of concerns. Of course, as you can probably imagine, I think that all of that stuff is meaningless and bullshit. And one of the arguments of the book is that um, we've invested all of our resources into that and gotten almost nothing out of it, right? So the CEO of Lululemon has been uh, been getting a ton of praise in a lot of lefty circles because uh, Lululemon fired some employees for confronting shoplifters, right? And this sort of somehow comports with the whole urge to, to sort of uh, defund the police and have police abolition. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, it's um, look at what we've what, what we've been brought to, like celebrating the CEO of Lululemon, right? So you can understand why, from my perspective, when um, uh, there hasn't really been a major sort of law that that significantly changes the economic fortunes of people on the bottom since uh, uh, Obamacare. And since Obamacare was transparently and expressly on the part of the Democratic Party, also a handout to the insurance companies so that they would get on board with it, you know, it's hard not to sort of see like a world where the left controls culture and nothing else. So I want to pivot a little to some of your meritocracy work because I think it points to a little bit of the question of what social justice consists of and what's a what's a hard sell um because one thing you talked about in your cult of smart book that really stuck with me was i think there was an anecdote about um, a mom who is a you know immigrant to america who just kind of casually said when talking about her children like and that one like not so smart um and you know it it really spoke to what you're arguing about which is that there's a kind of I don't know if you frame it exactly this way but an inherent dignity to people and we want to respond to that dignity without making intelligence the the bar for valuing others because not everyone will clear that bar and then we're kind of stuck in the mindset of either having to lie about whether they'll, they'll clear it because we don't know how to justify treating them well otherwise um, or kind of getting trapped a different way but i think there's a huge mindset shift not just for the elites but though particularly there to be able to say like my kid is not so smart and not feel like you've said my kid is not is worthless right um so I'm kind of curious for that push on what justice entails, like what the human person is. Like, do you see fronts where that fight is happening? Um, and how do you approach that revaluing of people in your own life? Well, so I would say like one thing that I would sort of add for the, for the listeners um, who haven't read the book is that um, that mother I'm talking about was Chinese. Um, mm. And uh, obviously in China, there's a big achievement culture. There's a valuing of intelligence and of education. But... Um, this was a person who was not marinated in American expectations about the kind of things that you did and did not say about her kid, their kids. And I just admired, I was taken aback by, but I admired things like, yeah, he's not very smart. And um, uh, as I say in the book, right, like, um, if, if, because I, you know, I was there, there was a bunch of people there, and I saw people sort of blanch and sort of like, like, what, what, what did she just say? Um, but if she had said, right, like, Oh, he's he doesn't have an ear for music. Then no one would have cared, right? If 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 she had said, "Oh, he'll never be a great athlete," it's very normal in my culture, right, to say you're not good at sports, and for that even to be a point of pride rather than just you know um, neutral. Exactly, right? not not good at art, not good at music, not good at sports. That there are all manner of things in which, um, uh, or even like you know, we can say, "Oh, he's not going to be very tall," right? Like there are all sorts of of human attributes that we are readily able to sort of say, this person is not going to excel in that dimension, but it's okay because it's not assumed to be existential about them. But smart, and the whole, the whole, the title cult of smart, the whole point is that um, intelligence is seen as a totalizing statement of um, human worth. Um, some of the stuff that didn't get into the book was some of the, for various reasons from the editing process was, some of the historical stuff where I show that this was not always true, that uh, there are historical examples of people talking about intelligence as just one of many. Um, I blame Thomas Dewey, among other people. But anyway, um, uh, <clears throat> the thing that I always just, I just would just point out to people is that like, first of all, the notion, of course, intelligence is an extremely useful uh, element, uh, useful, useful attribute to have, and it will always be valuable in many domains, and it's a good thing to have. Um, but again, so is being tall, right? Um, and uh, intelligence is a human attribute uh, uh, like any other, and that it's influenced by gene and environmental interactions, and that we can't fully control it, right? 
And um, the point that I was trying to make in the book is that by insisting on a blank slate mindset that uh, says that uh, anyone can be a genius, anyone can be uh, a academic superstar is actually an extremely cruel thing to do. Because when people inevitably fail to meet those standards, the only one that they have to blame is themselves, right? What I'm uh, trying to do in that book is to say, look, there's lots of different ways to be a useful human being, and we all have something to contribute. Uh, our education system right now is set up to favor standardization and to favor um, <clears throat> uh, a very narrow set of paths into different uh, sort of different lives, and that we can continue to have schools, continue to teach kids many of the same things in the curriculum, but broaden out the scope of sort of what it means to be educated and to get your diploma. Um, and also to sort of reflect the fact that uh, the sort of the, the success pathway of uh, you know, salutatorian to Stanford to Google is just that that's just not a replicable path for the vast majority of people. So, Freddie, I've got to push you here because you said everyone has something to contribute. Um, and Sus Susanna and I agree on that for Christian reasons. But I want to ask you, like, what does that mean, especially in an age with more euthanasia, more medical aid and dying, where there's more of an idea that even if you do at some point, you might come to the end of justifying yourself where an exit is preferred or even encouraged? Yeah. So look, um, <clears throat> let me answer that question by relating it to the question of like what egalitarianism actually means, right? Um, uh, I, oh, this will be like the 50th podcast I've ever said this on, but I, I, I feel like I have to keep repeating it. Um, as a self-identified Marxist, I'm constantly told that what, I, what I'm asking for is, is equality, that the purpose of Marxism is equality. But in fact, Marxism, uh, equality is not and has never been a political goal of Marxism. And in fact, Marx and uh, Engels, independently of each other, arrived at the conclusion that equality is a nonsensical goal, right? Um, because any kind of human difference, right, a, a, a preference for mac and cheese over a preference for noodles, whatever, can be expressed as an inequality. The only way to achieve actual equality is with a complete lack of differenti differentiating features, which is not possible, not desirable. So what's the egalitarianism that we do pursue? Um, I think that we, we, we pursue an egalitarianism of human dignity, right, and the value, fundamental value of a human life. Um, why do I think that? Uh, I think it's just derived from, uh, for myself, um, <clears throat> derived from an observation of the human species, uh, looking at all the different ways in which human beings have flourished and can flourish, uh, recognizing that some of that flourishing is things like having compassion, right? Or being patient or being a good listener, right? Or being someone who's always willing to help uh, or being someone who's non-judgmental. These elements of uh, being a useful or, or, or high quality or successful human being that are not typically put on a resume uh, are things that I think that uh, people can access uh, even if they are not particularly talented in any given dimension. But it's also uh, a statement of the fact that um, I have a kind of pre-political belief in uh, the, the sense that uh, basic material security and rights and dignity are not things that are deserved, right? They are, these are things that are uh, part of our endowment as uh, human beings. Um, how would I sort of philosophically uh, defend the sort of basis through which I derive that, that belief in equality? I don't know that I could do it articulately. I loved your use of the word endowment, you know, which obviously has a very particular place in American founding documents, but it has, you know, uh, a direct object, right? Or a dative or something endowed by. Um, do you do you have a response there? Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I think that, um, I think that the, the, the process of existing as a human being is to, uh, observe human beings in states of extreme, um, joy and extreme sorrow and in, um, all manner of, uh, uh at their best and at their worst and their ugliness and their beauty. And for me, 
from that process of observation, from sort of looking at what the human species is capable of and what individual uh, people uh, experience and how they interact with each other, um, that has instilled in me personally uh, a feeling that uh, I, I have a moral responsibility to, in whatever small way, uh, help them be put in a position in their life in which they well, can... Well, Freddie. Freddie, there's no way I can let you get away with that for me. Um, like, is that for you in, like, do you, exp we can all come to observe the world and come to false assumptions about the world by observing it. Mm. Um, but is this like for you in the same sense of, but if anyone else studied physics, I expect we'd hit on the same answers because physics is out there, um, even if some of us make mistakes while studying it. Or is it for you in a much more personal and non-extended I like sense? vanilla ice cream. So is this something that's like a feature of humans and reality that anyone ought to be able to, or really, you know, you would expect everyone to be able to ideally come to, yes, humans are, have been given have, in are some endowed sense, with yes. in some yeah. sense are endowed with this this value and um ought, you know ought to be given this dignity is that like a feature of reality well see here, at least in your perception here's where i have the advantage as someone who does not believe in a transcendent intelligence or uh uh a uh a consciousness beyond consciousness uh in a world in which you don't imagine that there is some sort of supreme uh vision of uh <clears throat> someone who sort of conveys value and, and determines value um, for me is all we got, right? Like mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm- Is that also true of physics? Is that also true of physics, Freddie? Ah, uh, you know, <laughs> I think that physics is useful. I don't know if physics is true, right? Like the value of, of things like mathematics and science is not revealed by their truth value. It's revealed by their use value. So the fact that physics has enabled us to build planes that don't fall out of the sky reveals it to be useful. And so whether it's true is not of great relevance to me. What about the law of non-contradiction? Uh, you mean, you mean like, <laughs> so can something be, so is that true? So can, Mar what, are we talking about married just, bachelors here? Yeah, sort of like, so what you've just said, you've made a claim about reality that physics is useful, but not necessarily true. Um, somebody else might make a claim about reality saying, you know, physics actually describes the truth of the world or ma say mathematics, like two plus two equals four. Um, you might say, well, that might be true for you, or you might be able to use that, those kinds of mathematical tools to make something that works, but it's not really, if two plus two equals four is not a feature of reality. Someone else might say, oh, but it, I think it is a feature of reality. Can both of your claims be true at the same time? Uh, well, look, I, I think that, uh, as you will concede, the effort to actually get down to uh, a uh, the the actual foundational truth that is not derived from induction and experience um, has really proven to be a bust in the last couple hundred years. Like Bertrand Russell, for example, considered the second half of his life a waste because he spent so much of it trying to explain the foundations of mathematics in elementary logic only for his students to demonstrate that that's impossible, right? Like, I, I, I just think that like there's been an awful lot of, of attempts to find this sort of this fundamental reality that explains uh, and supports itself. And absent that thing, um, I'm just going to have to go with my own moral instincts, as imperfect as they may be. So it's been a bust if you're seeking a materialist sort of understanding. Like, obviously, Bertrand Russell was committed to that. It, I don't think, I mean, Lee and I are both kind of Platonists, and we're Platonists, I think, before we were Christians. Mm, that's right. Um, <laughs> from, from our perspective, like, that bust has been a big, big, big red flag. Mm. And I guess like um, what you're describing is you, for, at least from my perspective, there's a couple of things that you've described. You've described this based on observation of humans and, and all their weirdness and horribleness and wonderfulness, you have observed that they ha have been, in, have an endowment of um, dignity and ought to be given you know, value and ought to be treated in ways that reflect that value. That's something that you've come to as something like you're, you're perceiving it. You're perceiving it the way that I might perceive, you know, I'm looking outside right now at a porch and there's a, a swinging 
seat on the porch. Obviously, you're not perceiving it with your eyesight, but you're perceiving it nevertheless. Um, why not trust that perception? Uh, <clears throat> well, let me cut to the chase here. I will concede that like most people in my position, uh, you, can, you can fairly say that I am a non-believer who has moral foundations that are derived from, whether I like it or not, the sort of philosophical uh, tradition, which was itself based on theological uh, assumptions, right? In other words, uh, I mean, I could tell you that it's, that it's all turtles, or I could tell you the fact that like, I've emerged from a tradition that uh, sort of starts in uh, <clears throat> a place where theological assumptions were assumed to be uh, woven into the fabric of what we consider morality, and that then down long, a long, long line of philosophical thinking and writing, they emerge at my particular uh, uh, moral values. All I can tell you is that from my limited and contingent point of view, um, the sort of inherent dignity and value of human beings um, slaps me in the face every time I observe human beings. And from a practical point of view, I feel that I have no choice but to take that seriously. I, I agree with you. <laughs> um, I, you say so you also said that you, um, you grew up in a Marxist household. That's right. Yep. My, yeah, my dad grew up, I kind of, well, I grew up in a, his parents were Trotskyists. So, you know, there was a lot of that in there. And I guess a lot of where I ended up coming to was this all, like what you've described about human beings seems, you know, to, again, slap me in the face every time I look at them. Um, and, and I, it's, and, you know, you could argue that like Marx came out of a kind of Judeo-Christian long tradition of valuing humans, um, and was a kind of secularizing, a secularized version of that. Um, because it was a, because he was a secularized and kind of historical materialist version of that, it seems to me that he kind of knocked the props out from under the things that he was aiming to, the reasons that he was aiming to um, get to this more just world in the first place. Is that a tension that you've experienced? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to say that, like, I probably spend a lot less time on, like, fundamental, like, foundational questions about the origins of morality than you guys do, which is, I, I mean, I certainly did spend a lot of time doing that back in college. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, I come from a background, like, I, like you said, I grew up in Marxist household, although for the record, my parents went to church. Um, uh, I, uh, I come from a background, uh, of a particular school, uh, of left-wing socialist, uh, traditional history. It's deeply influenced by Marx and by Proudhon and Bakunin and Kropotkin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, it is an effort to look at the history of the world and say, right, um, going way, way back. There have at least been arguments about a certain level of fundamental equality of human between human beings. Uh, certainly, there are, are many traditions that deny that equality. The notion of like hereditary monarchy and hereditary aristocracy are pretty much explicitly based on the idea that human beings are not all equal. But there's also been a sort of a counter narrative that human beings are sort of deserve equal rights and equal opportunity, etc. Uh, and that is the vision that over time has become the sort of expressly dominant point of view in at least in Western perspective that um, almost no one's sort of explicit philosophy, whether political or otherwise, does not accept the idea that human beings are in some sense entitled to certain kinds of equality. Now, as I've said many times, I don't believe in equality of either opportunity or of, or of outcomes because they're nonsensical, but um, there is something that is sort of shared between everyone. And the observation about hipstery is that even after that has become the dominant assumption, we have all of these systems in place that prevent that kind of basic equality of uh, at the beginning, at conception, at birth, etc. Uh, and the point is to sort of 
point out the ways in which the system is hypocritical for systematically denying uh, that equality, even while it celebrates that equality in the abstract, right? So like this is, I mean, the, obviously the classic example of this is the American Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which articulates these grand soaring values of equality of man uh, at a time in which uh, human beings were being bought and sold in the same country. But that's just a particularly ugly and explicit vision of what we're talking about. And right now we're in a country where um, <clears throat> there are extremely different uh, life circumstances at birth that you don't choose. You can't choose your parents, right? What I tried to introduce in the, to the conversation in Cult of Smart is also that like, you also can't choose your genetic endowment and that in the current uh, moment, um, not having a natural predisposition towards certain kinds of cognitive skills holds you back. And I'm asking people to wonder, okay, Moral foundations aside, is there not a big gulf between our stated beliefs in universal human dignity, etc., and the actual lived experience of how we process people through our system in a way that produces systemic inequality? I don't know if I if you would call that like a moral system, but that's what I got. <laughs> well. I feel like I want to get you back on to press you more on all these things, but we should probably wrap now. Um, Freddie, thank you so much for coming on and letting us, you know, nag you in various ways. I had a great time. Thanks. <laughs> both books are fantastic. Um, we will drop links to both in the show notes. And um, yeah, thanks again. And I hope to have you on again. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books, to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Claire Stober and Mariana Wright about giving up all one's money. Thank you.